Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. What were one or two of the most unforgettable uh, shows? that you did with Prince that just stand out? It could be for any reason, you know, it could be something funny or it could be something that was, you know, heartwarming or whatever. Yeah. It's hard to name just two. I mean, I think somewhere, but I'm sorry, I can't recall the real, but my favorite moments of ever being on stage with him are always on the after show have been on the after shows, you know, the moments where we were flying the whole band especially in that one night alone when we were in out in Europe, we were in Denmark with the bus and, we, you know, we, we, I think those were our best musical moments all together for all of us collectively with, with Larry Graham there and, and Maceo. And we, you know, that would make me the happiest. I didn't care if it was in a big place or in a small bar. Uh, I just wanted him to look at me and go like, shit, she's playing a real good solo. You know, what candy, wait a minute. You know, all that that's, and also when he let you double dip on the solos, then you knew you were doing good. You know, like you get a, a solo and then the end jam, you go, Candy, come back. And then of course, I had Maceo Parker next to me. Of course, he got most of the time he got the second dip, you know, in the second solo. But um, he let me double dip sometimes. And that was my that's the only moment I need in my life. I don't need for him to name check me in a video. I didn't need for him to buy me diamonds or clothes or, or you know, and have me on a huge stage and make me a huge star. I, I just, the moments that I made Prince happy musically, that those are closest to my heart. And another most memorable, but that's not for a good reason is, yeah, the period where, where we were with John and the drummer. At first he lost his, his daughter, his baby daughter who drowned while we were on tour, uh, musicology, I think, yeah. And that was just the worst. Uh, and then I remember all that happening and we had to play uh, New Orleans, uh, Essence, which was a big deal for Prince. And he made John do the shows. And at that moment, right from the moment we knew his baby girl had died and he flew back with Larry and Prince to the funeral, but then he came back into the tour. I come from a whole different background. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm white. I'm from Europe. When people die, especially children, we we mourn, and it's the end of the world. And we, it is the end of the world. But you know, we do. We are serious. We don't laugh. We don't. We certainly don't sing. We don't do gospel. We don't play. You know, it's all downhill from there. Um, so what Prince was doing, he was trying to keep the band together, keep John on his toes, because he thought if I let John go and he goes home. 
he will never play the instrument again. He will never come back in the tour. But at that time, I found it so harsh. I was fighting. Well, I wasn't fighting with him, but I was really angry at him. I didn't understand what he was doing. He would suddenly come and dress up in the rehearsal. He took us all to Minneapolis for those that week. And we were just rehearsing for the Essence Fest. And he would come in and dressed crazy. I, I think you as a fan might remember that he had that Sonny and Cher wig on and stained glasses. Normally that would have been fun. But for me, it was like, what are you doing? This girl died, you know, this baby girl that we all knew and you're trying to be a clown. I didn't have the cultural baggage to understand that. Then I understand it, you know, later. I understand what he was trying to do. It makes me really emotional because... I didn't get it, but he was like, if we, if, if anybody goes down, we all go down, you know, has also a lot to do with being African-American. Um, sorry, did I cry? It's just, it's a big moment in my life where I got to realize that, hey, your heritage is so freaking different that you can cry because you have the luxury to cry. But a lot of people don't even have that. They have to go on. And in the end, he was so right. And I learned so much about, about life from that moment. So very, very memorable. Wow. Sorry. I can never go through this and not cry because it just brings me back, you know. There was so much pain and so much growing for me to do that. And um, I remember him even being tough on John, even after all that happened while we were on tour. And I would be so mad. And one time... It was also funny. We were at a, some kind of a big uh, place where we were playing some kind of, you know, big hall. And uh, he was uh, going on John and saying, your timing is not good or whatever. And I got so mad. I thought, how can you in this spirit of his life be so harsh on him? You know, and I just, I remember I got my saxophone and I'd had it. And I just wanted to walk up to just whack him. And then Macy, I was like playing with one hand. Put his other hand on my shoulder. We don't do that. Because <laughs> Maceo understood what he was trying to do. Maceo found it also very frustrating, but he, he understood it way more because, you know, being... Especially because he lived it, uh, through similar things with James Brown, too. Of course. And, and he also lived the life, you know. What did I know? I came from a whole different... I, I knew about discrimination. I knew about hurt and stuff, but not in the way that... African-Americans had to go through all these centuries, you know? So in, in, I think James Brown tried to do exactly the same thing, but sometimes it's too harsh and, and that's how it felt, but I didn't get the gist of it, you know, but, or the, 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 you know, the spirit of it. So, uh, Maceo <laughs> kept me from really getting into a fist fight with Prince, but I don't know what Prince would have done. He would not, you know, it's it's it, he would have understood it in one way or another and then he would have explained it to me really but back then I could not I thought when somebody dies you stop you stop the tour you all go home and you start a new and a year later but that's not the way and in a way this is what he taught me and in a way because when he died I had to play a gig that night and I only got the message one one hour before the show and I had to play in a place where always a lot of Prince fans would come to visit me. And I had to be the one to tell those fans that he passed away. And that gig I did without crying. Wow. And that's what he told me. Told me. 
<laughs> you thought you were going to have a happy interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is heavy. I, I, I didn't know that. I had no idea that you had to do that when he passed, you know, that yeah. would have been incredible. Yeah. But I, I was proud of myself and this, and that's what he was always doing. You know, you're not there for yourself and your, your own pity. You, you are here there for the audience. And when we lived that with John, I was too young to understand that. But when I lived it through with him, I was old enough to get it. And, you know, you surpass yourself. And we played, you know, I played with the band and I asked them, uh, you guys, two young guys in the band. They said, what do we do? Chance was there. Chance was in my band, Chance Howard. And I looked at him and I said, what, what are we going to do? And he said, we play. And I said, yes. I said, we play. I said, do we do Purple Rain? Because I had never in my life done Purple Rain without Prince. I still don't like that. I mean, he's the only one who plays it, you know, well. And I don't like it if other bands do it, <laughs> whoever it is. Uh, and then and then we thought, yeah, now this is the only night we play this. So we played Purple Rain. Ilko played a beautiful solo. Uh, Chance sang it and he sang his butt off. And we have a recording. It's It was good. It was, I mean, we did him proud. And any other day we wouldn't have. And he would be like, you know, he hated it when other people played his songs and he would be, you know, from heaven, he'd be like, what are you doing? But I think this one, he would have, he would have okayed. He wouldn't have said, oh, that was great. He would have said, yeah, <laughs> that was enough for us. <laughs> Sorry, well, I'm crying because, but I, I'm telling these things. This is not something I tell a lot because I know people are Prince fans and I know people have lived this, you know. They can understand this. <laughs> they might still think I'm nuts, but they can understand it. What? Um, when was the last time that you had spoken to Prince before? Yeah, I, I, which is weird. You know, we were in the O2, and I can never really, I don't know what really happened. But we just did musicology, um, and we were getting ready to do all those shows in the O2. I still, to this day, don't know what really happened. But I, we did a jam session the night before. My saxophone was uh, bad. I, somebody repaired it for me and they did it all wrong and I had to play with it. So I wasn't really on the top of my game. And I was always trying to be on top of my game with him, you know, never, ever. And that was the only night in my whole life that I felt like Shit, I didn't play well, you know, I just it got stuck, blah, blah, blah. So that wasn't a nice feeling. And then we got off stage or the next day or something and we were in the dressing room and he was laughing about somebody that I know very well. I will never give the name. I'll take it to my grave. But he was laughing about him with some of the musicians. And they were like, ha, ha, ha. And I didn't like that. I felt they were talking about somebody uh, behind his back and also saying things that were totally true. true. And I felt, of course, that I had to say something. And so I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, so I went away. And I, those, those are the only two things I know that happened. And then the next day, uh, he just called me out of the blue. And I know he called Sheila as well and other musicians. And then he said, hey, sorry, but um, yeah, I think I invited too many people, which just might have been true because everybody in his uncle, he had flew over to there, like Morris and everybody, I think. So um, and then he said something like, I think I invited too much people. It's going to be too much. Uh, I think uh, I'm not going to use you this time. And I was, but I was livid because I had. First of all, for him, canceled a whole tour of myself. I had brought my mom with me. He had booked me an apartment. We had just moved in there. We thought we were being there for three, four months. So I brought my whole, uh, you know, my whole house with me. 
And by that time, you have to understand that the end of the musicology tour, he was really, now I know, in a lot of pain. He was not the happy prince that we all knew, Dif more difficult to work with. Um, still, we loved him to death. But I, I remember sometimes uh, sitting there, or I was even one time crying out of frustration and talking to Sheila, who was just a guest star, and I said, I love him so much. We all want to make him happy. We are all here for him. Why can't he be happy? You know, why so... And she says, I don't know, you know. And uh, so the, the last months were not so nice. So when we started that new, new tour, the first day, he was very upbeat. So I was happy. And then it felt again like that. And now, in hindsight, I think he just, was just in so much pain, you know, physical pain that he couldn't really, you know, he couldn't be so easygoing anymore like he was to us. So, yeah, all that came about. And I was like, I was really angry. And I thought, okay, then I'm going home right now. And I was very angry and took off. And actually, a few times he, he tried to call me for some trivial things. He never called me and said, hey, are you angry or something? Or, you know, he never said, I'm sorry, I had to let you go. He was just like, after two years, he called me. Oh, hey, I'm in Amsterdam. His secretary, uh, he's in Amsterdam and he wants to know a good health food store. Do you know one? And I'd be like, What? You know, <laughs> so that's I never talked to him again. But in hindsight, when he was playing, for instance, in Holland, I was never there because I was always touring. He always said really sweet things about me to the audience and stuff. And he and other people who he knew said, no, he loved you. He was talking about you. So, you know, so nicely. So I think in his mind, he, he never did something uh, negative in that. He really felt, OK, sorry, next time she'll be back. But I thought he just. Finally, I was the last, you know, the last one to get sent off, like he did with a lot of musicians in his career. So I think I took it all wrong and, and I stayed very stubborn for a long time. And so in the end, I, I didn't speak to him for a few years, I think. And then so it really hurt when he died because I felt, oh, because in the back of my mind, I thought I'm going to see him one time again or he's going to call out of the blue after 10 years and we'll jam again. You know, I, I was pretty sure of that. And then it, I never got that chance, you know, I never got the, also the chance to really understand him. Uh, that came later. So, yeah, that was bittersweet, but it was not. I mean, I was more hurt by the fact that he, I'm such a fan and he was not there anymore, just like you and everybody else. You know, it's not a trauma. It's just like, you know, how could he of all people die so young? You know, we, we all needed him so much. Absolutely. And I can't believe it's been six years now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you mentioned, uh, I have something to, to show you here because the, the musicology tour, um, I, I'm sure you don't remember, but uh, my wife and I met you backstage. Uh, the yeah, show you, you look did. so, uh, I probably did. Oh, the wow. The Fillmore. Yeah, the Fillmore. Oh, my God. And um, you signed. You're oh, signed, nice. you're signed here. Wow, cool. I can see that. And Maceo. Yeah. And Greg. That was Although, a great night, Fillmore. That was so much fun. Greg's here. Yeah. So um, that was one of the best gifts I ever got. My wife surprised me for my birthday. Uh, that night. And, you know, with the tickets to go up there from Los Angeles and to go to the show. And that was, you know, kind of um, warm up gigs for the musicology tour. Wow. Yeah. I know. Oh, God. Yeah. Because I know you. I also know your name from. You know, I sometimes see all the things happening around Prince, of course, but I, I thought when we started, you looked so familiar. So, okay. Yeah. So I saw you numerous times, but that yeah. was one where I got to, you know, spend a little time. So that was yeah. super That's memorable. Amazing. And uh, God, what an incredible tour that was. 
Yeah, it's just crazy. So many things happened. We in Fillmore. Another memorable one, just short for laughs, is the one where we got uh, where we played Madison Square Garden, and we were with Cynthia Robinson and Jerry uh, from the Sly Stone Band. We had that, and I remember they came to pick us up from our hotel, and it was of course woo Madison Square Garden for me first time and big big deal. And there was uh, some fans that came to pick us up, and so we get outside, uh, we in the lobby, and we see two or three vans come up. And everybody just gets in, everybody gets in, and the, the van door closed, and they drive off, and there's no vans anymore. And I'm like, what? They just left us, like me and Cynthia Rump, you know, it's, it's like legends standing next to me, the horn section, us three. They just left us, and nobody, and we waited for a little bit, and it was like, nobody even called to say, they didn't even miss us, you know, it's like, so I was all like, do we, I'm not going to take this in a Dutch manner. And Jerry and Cynthia just said, Hmm, I wonder if we can take the subway. So we we took the subway with all our clothes. My mom and Jerry and Cynthia and nobody, everybody in the subway was like this, not knowing that Sly Stone's original horn players were in the subway with them. And we drove all the way by subway and we came in and nobody had missed us. And everyone was like, oh, hello. I said, hey, hello. <laughs> you just had <laughs> Cynthia Robinson drive the subway to the Madison Square Garden. And Prince was just like, he was like, Cool. Okay, let's start. <laughs> so, no, that's, that's a little funny. fun. Type. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, was there anything that uh, pops to mind, Candy, that you saw Prince do and all the times you saw him on stage where it just kind of blew your mind, whether it was like oh, a particular God. solo or whether he was, you know, like I saw him at times playing a keyboard and the guitar at the same time and things like that? All the time. But the slickness always got me, even before I got to play with him. But what the, the idiocy that you can play the best musical notes possible in the best timing ever, in the best tasteful way, and then do a pirouette and come back and hit the other key at the right moment or do sing at the same time. That's already really difficult to play guitar and sing at the same time. And a lot of people say, yeah, but a lot of people do that. Yeah, but they play folk music and they play like this. So it's really easy to sing. But if you play and then sing over that, that's that's like, I, I he's the Mozart or Beethoven or they are the prince of their time. So even, you know, that's what I always say to people. It's like, it's not normal how genius he was. And the funny thing is, was I saw him do all these things. And then sometimes I would tap him on the shoulder and say, so... How do you actually do that? That singing and playing and uh, and then he would always like he would never give me any. He was like, "Oh, I just do it," and then he would walk away. <laughs> he would never give me any advice, never any insights. You know, like, "Oh, well, if you do it like this, it's easy," or maybe if you, you know, he would never. He was always like, "Find it out by yourself." You know, play your own damn song. That was his thing. What he would say. <laughs> what. <laughs> What, what would you say? I think maybe you've touched on some of it, but is there uh, one or two lessons, um, whether it's performing or music business, uh, that you took forward from your association with Prince? Yeah, he either he enforced it in me, like the, the thought that I all it, the seed was already planted by my own dad or by you know my own career, but that that one that that every gig can be your last, every gig has to be a hundred ten percent. Always strive for the best. And if you fail, uh, there's tomorrow and it better be good then. Uh, and I took that too hard. Also, uh, almost uh, detrimental to my health and sanity because you cannot always perform 110%. But yeah, you got to at least try. Um, 
and that yeah where I was so emotional about that that yeah that if there's other people's pain involved you are not the most important one you have to help them suit their pain that's the number one rule of making music or making art it's to you know give solace or you know give people something to uh, uplift them and you are not important uh, th those people are in that moment and your own feelings you have to put them aside for a while and um in a good way and uh, that's what he taught me and uh, I'm, i'm glad he taught me because that made me a better musician And it comes through your recordings too. I mean, you know, consistent through your whole catalog is just, you know, so much joy and, you know, an upbeat vibe and positivity, you know, it really comes through on your music. Yeah. I'm, I'm myself. I'm not even a super positive person in the end I am, but I can have my days and I can see everything very bleak. And I, I'm very good at telling everybody all that's wrong in the world, <laughs> but I know so good that that's not the way to go you know i'm not going to smash my saxophone i'm going to use it and uplift people uh, as much as i can and that's the difference between some types of music and you know the african-american spirit is like when we start crying we would never stop so we are going to uplift we almost don't have a choice but uplift that's our duty and that's what they do and that's what i want to honor and what's I, what i learned from from that what would you say is an element that's signature of your style you know when people hear candy play a solo or um accompany something you know what is it that maybe might stand out as oh yeah that's i think that's candy you know belfer well what i'm good at at i'm good at um reacting to what for instance the singer or the other player is playing that's that's what i love i love to be being giving the answer uh to the question or to the remark that's been giving and i do that a lot in music and that's why i think i was good enough to play with Van morrison and pink floyd i just come in and use my you know non-fear of improvising i listen to what they what they are trying to say uh the feeling that they are trying to invoke and i just immediately have a feeling with that and think, okay, this fits that, you know, he's saying, I'm, you know, I want to be free. And then I play to do, you know, I feel, I don't even think, but I feel, okay, he wants to, or she wants to invoke something. And um, my, this is what my sex can do together with that. And that's what I'm good at. And that's what I do all the time. So it's funny when I started playing with Maceo and really listened to what he was doing is we are the total opposites. We, we, we sound alike because I'm a huge fan of Maceo, but uh, he tells the story. So Maceo always starts on the beat, on the first beat of, of a, you know, four bars of music. He starts right away. He tells you something. He says, hey, I'm Maceo and this is what I'm saying. And then Kenny comes in and I like you too, Maceo. And I love this and I am like this. Okay. And this is, that's why we could play together also so good. When we played, we were never... You know, like, oh, sorry, your turn, my turn. It always flowed like that. And that's my forte, maybe my only forte, but that's what I, uh, that's why I was really good at playing with other people. Like with Van Morrison, I never rehearsed one day in my life. And um, just because I felt him, I feel where his music is going to uh, because of the same background, I think. Yeah. So complimentary with Maceo and also with singers and whoever you're playing with. So you got to really listen and react. Yeah. 
I like to be, a, I have a huge ego, but I do like to be next to somebody who is, has even a bigger ego in, in the positive sense and go like, okay, here's the leader and here I am. This is what I can contribute here. And that's what I tried to do with Prince the whole time. You know, I would watch him like a hawk, see what he wanted to do. And hopefully, you know, I could be an instrument in that to help to get him, you know, to get his vision across, you know, to people. Well, and you've had such a distinguished, you know, solo career now of your own and so many records and all that. What were your aspirations, you know, as a solo artist? You know, what are you, early on, what were you hoping to accomplish? And, you know, uh, how do you feel that you've achieved that? Well, not many people will believe me, but when I started, even when I was 17, right before Lily was here in Prince, I really felt that I didn't want any of that at all. I wanted my own band. I just wanted to play in the Netherlands because there were back then a lot of opportunities to play. So you could play like a hundred gigs a year. You know, I thought that was going to be my life. Maybe one time play in Germany, which is our neighboring country and, you know, play in uh, certain places. I thought maybe the Paradiso would be great. Well, by, when I was 17, I already got, did that three times. So I was always adjusting my uh, vision for the future, but I was never ambitious in that way I, because I thought I would never achieve that. I had given that not even a second thought. But when I started playing with um, Dave and then with Prince, they ignited a fire in me. And suddenly I became much more amb ambitious, but it was all, and it's still always about the music. I can have, sell so many records i can be uh, have a grammy nomination or a prize somewhere but if tomorrow i play a bad solo my life is it's really sucks and when i play a good solo i might have no money or nothing but i'd be like hey you know it's that that's what gives me happiness always and it's it hasn't changed so the i'm very proud of the fact that i'm playing i'm a i'm a better player now i can play better i just learn and that's that's what i wanted to achieve and that's happening I'm not done learning, but that's happening. I got to say, just personally, you know, a couple of your favorite albums for me are for the love of you and oh, candy store you. and candy store. Um, you know, the ones where I feel have that extra little something of funk tend to be the ones, you know, I'm going to gravitate toward the most. Just yeah. I'm such a funk guy. Yeah. Well, for me, it's always so difficult to translate funk into albums because um, also for a while it was totally out. So even the, techniques and stuff were gone where you could if you want to do a good funk album you know the sound has to be dry has to be cool has to be good acoustic stuff you know and you just have to play it together because then you were locked and you're tight and for a while that was so out of fashion that I couldn't get anybody to do it like that and uh, life we were always doing funk stuff and it was always working but uh, my my records were for a long time sort of the blueprint for what I really wanted to do you know and I still feel the same way, but now I'm more, I know much more about technique and recording and producing that I think, okay, now I can get it across a little bit better than I used to. But the Candy Store is one of my favorite albums also. And that's also because at that time I had Chance Howard and Kirk Johnson at my house a lot in the Netherlands. They would just, I would fly them in and they would stay for weeks or months and they lived at my house almost, especially Chance. And that was just such a beautiful period. And we would just, you know, create music in my barn um that i had back then and yeah that's we would rehearse in my living room with everybody you know those were best of times and i feel that album is very effortless it feels very you know and funky like you say so uh, we try to do that with the new album as well I, i'm capturing spirit a little bit like that yeah the new one is like really good i really Thanks. enjoyed listening to it and 
Uh, I mentioned Nile Rogers being on there, but also you have Marcus Miller on there on the track. Yeah. And, um, and Niall's on two tracks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So congratulations on that record. Yeah, thank you very much. It's out. It's not going to be until 28th of October. So I'm really, finally, it took us three or four years because of that stupid COVID. But um, now we're there and that's that's a good feeling. I bet. And it's long. It's like 75 minutes. It's almost like yeah. a double record, you know? Well, the vinyl is going to be double and it's beautiful. I've all, already seen the artwork. It's going to be just great. But uh, yeah, the record company said to me, like, you know, why don't you choose your best, your very, very best stuff? Because it's better to have less songs, more quality than to have all these songs. And I said, I've been locked up inside. You know, I've been through so much, uh, not just not personally, but with the world, you know, all the things that have happened. It's too late to think about that. I want to just bring everything out. I want to give people their money's worth. And if they don't like it, they can stop at the song six. And at least they have, you know, this is, I have to give this to people. This is from my heart. I cannot say, okay, I've worked in this, uh, on this for many months. And now I'm, it's not the greatest song. I'll put it away. It's not, you know, I can't do it like that. I, I needed to, this was my uh, opus magnus. <laughs> Yeah, the whole message is like, hey, let's get this party restarted, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, we've been given a second chance. I don't know what the world is doing in the meantime, but that's how I feel. And I'm like, um, you know, let's go. Let's let's try to make the, the momentum we have now where we, you know, where we could have just be happy to be out of our houses again. Let's not spoil that by all the crazy stuff that's going on. Let's make it better. But not many people... Well, many people see it like that, but not many politicians are acting like it. Mm. I feel like, you know, the highlights are too numerous to mention, but some of my favorites I'll just share with you are uh, Raindrops. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, real, um, I think you're playing soprano sax on yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Raindrops started as uh, we wanted to do that live with, like, with it. there's an African feeling that I wanted to, you know, the stuff that I grew up with. I grew up with a lot of African music uh, that my father would, uh, you know, take us to, and always was so ingrained in my brain uh, and in my heart. And I just wanted to capture a little bit of that. Try to, um, but then in the end, we had to do it all with uh, computers and and the live drums. We we able to manage that, but then. COVID came and we couldn't sit with like 16 African drummers. So we tried to capture the spirit a little bit of it. And uh, that's why it's one of my favorite songs as well. Yeah. Also, um, we never, the title cut real funky and I feel like definite Prince vibes coming through, at least in the beginning, early parts of it. Yeah. Well, the whole thing about like, we never going to, we're never going to stop. That's just that sprint, you know, like, no way we're going to stop until we're not there anymore. And that's what he did. I mean, he, he just went on and on. And because we are here, we, we've, we've given this tool of music and we should use it, you know. So for me, uh, it, sometimes it, it was my own mantra because sometimes I was like, how are we ever going to play again? I had to say it to myself, but I also had to keep everybody, um, you know, uh, try to keep up the spirits everywhere because, Sometimes the musicians would be super down, you know, from not having any money, no, no future. Sometimes I, I, you know, I talked to promoters and they were like, yeah, what's the use? We have to reschedule all the time. I think we're going to just stop, you know, and come back when we can all can come back. And I was like, no, we got to keep this going. You know, you can't, we can't afford to lay out for two years and not work on the future. That's crazy. And 
I had to keep this as a mantra, but sometimes for myself as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the outreach you did, you know, online and through those channels, I mean, definitely was uplifting for a lot of people. Yeah, I hope so. It's it's uh, it, it was a bit disappointing for me to the technical side of things. Like, you know, when we started doing stuff like, oh, OK, we got this. We can all make new songs and then Sheila will play some percussion. I'll have her play and we would do a live show for people and we'll keep everybody happy. Uh, and then this whole latency thing, it's still not solved. You know, we can go to the moon. We've been going to the moon uh, for, for uh, four decades now, but we cannot still can't, you know, play with a band all over the world and get it tight. And then people would say, oh, it's, it's pretty tight. It says, hey, we are from, you know, this is the Minneapolis sound. <laughs> pretty tight doesn't cut it, you know. So a lot of people gave up again. So I tried what I could, but I was very frustrated at, uh, at all the Instagram companies and the Facebook and stuff that they didn't give us better tools, you know. It's like, yeah. Oh, I can see that. Better. Yeah, I can <laughs> see that for sure. Um I also really like No Time for This. Thank you. That's a funny track because when we recorded it, we thought <laughs> this was the one that's going to not be on the album, maybe, you know, like the, okay, this is the leasing. And we did it. It's a weird song. It's not hip. It's also not old fashioned. It's, it's uh, our own style. And, but when we started playing it before the album is out, we've been playing it already for a year and it's the biggest hit on the show. And I don't know the, the, the frustration that's in the song um, really, uh, yeah, uh, caught a nerve with a lot of people. Understandable, but the power—they, I thought they'd be scared of me, like doing something like that. And especially live, we go, it's like a, you know, we go like this, and uh, and they love it. They eat it up. So it's so funny. It's so unpredictable what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, and the singles, yeah, 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 yeah right. And which yeah, is that's now the second single. But I think in the states, it's going to be convergency because. They are still, I'm trying to get out of that a little bit, although I love smooth jazz, but I've always felt that I don't want to dupe people. You know, I am a little bit smooth jazz because I play ballads, but most of my stuff is up-tempo. And I was fortunate enough to still be welcomed in that community, but I would also love to reach younger people and the funk audience. So uh, um, I think with now it's so beautiful that we do Convergency because that's, that's really a special song. So I hope that gets us on the radio again and then they can, you know, listen to the whole album. And the other song I did with now, which is totally chic with saxophone. I, uh, that's what I asked him for. And he did that. <laughs> he can't, he like bookends the record, right? He's on the first and the last tracks. Yeah. Because I felt I want to start the album with a bang and then I want to end it with something really close to my heart and intimate. And that's what this song is. And now it's so funny because uh, the record company said to me, okay, do you want to work with Nile Rogers? And I said, yeah, everybody wants to work with Nile Rogers, but I like to work with people when it really is a, you know, not a pre, how do you say it, uh, organized thing by the record company. I want it to be organic, you know. I want them to know me and say, hey, I want to work with Candy and not something that's forced upon both of us. So I said, well, does he know me? And they said, are you kidding? He's, he's sitting next to me and he loves you and he's so glad that we signed you and he wants to do work with you. I said, okay. <laughs> and then we were totally in the middle of COVID. And uh, so the first time now Rogers is going to call me and my, my boyfriend, everybody like the kids are saying, now Rogers is calling. And my boyfriend said, here's the phone. It's now Rogers. And I'm like, hey, now. And right away, and that's how he is. I heard this from more people. He gives his whole life story. He's totally open. You can tell him anything, you know. So long conversation, but he, he calls so many times, you know, he, he makes time for 
everybody. It's, it's just incredible. So after the third, third call, it was the kids guy like, yeah, it's now Rogers again. <laughs> because I knew I would be on the phone with him for 20 minutes. And he, the first, one of the first things he said, he said, did I just rate your birthday is 19 September? I said, yeah, it's mine too. That's crazy. Convergency. We are meant to be making a song together. He's so positive. So he that right that moment he had the title of the track and and the thing that we played together. So at the very end of the song we did this outro and we really play. I had to go into his licks and we played this exact same licks and it's so beautiful the guitar and the sax and it's really it's you know it's beautiful that even without that distance of COVID forced upon and also the distance in our lives what we experience how we look what we are where we're from. And then it's, you know, with music, you can be together like this in an instant. Absolutely. Yeah. Music is what binds us all as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it does. You know? It really truly does. And brings us through whatever yeah. it may be. Yeah. Um, and how did you come in contact with uh, Marcus Miller? I've known Marcus Miller from so many years ago because he, I was a big fan of Dave Samor and he would play always the North Sea Jazz Festival and I would always be there because my father organized stuff there and also I would play there myself. So soon they knew about me and Marcus always, like even when I was 16 years old, he was so sweet to me always and he would give me little insights on everybody. He would say like, uh, you see David Samorn, man, he drives me crazy. He just goes through 600 saxophone reads a night and he's still not happy and uh, he just knew that I needed that because I had so little self-confidence as a player and I was always struggling with my reads and my sound and he would just let me in on little secrets you know that Dave probably wouldn't want anybody to know but I got into it and that sense of humor and he would always uh, you know have me backstage I, I, do, I grew up with those two guys they weren't that much older than me but still and they were my heroes and I've seen him so many times and then later on we started doing the smooth jazz cruises together and that's when we grew closer, him and his, family, his wife as well, Brendan. You know, you're on that same boat together and you, you do the same stuff. And he even gave me a music lesson one time because I don't know anything. I, I'm, I'm just so basic. I just do everything by ear. But sometimes there's music that you can't do by ear. You really have to know your, you know, your basics. And nobody would really tell me. They were like, yeah, it's a very difficult song. And they would just walk away. And I was like, and then he said, come on and he took me in the dressing room and he said he took a guitar which he plays also very good and he said see all those chords they're just the same and for 75 percent, i said oh yeah and i didn't we still didn't get what he was saying but for 25 percent, it was the only time really somebody really taught me something i was like wow you know so i'm very fond of him and uh, he played in amsterdam just a few days ago i i hopped on, i jumped on stage with him we did a song together he, he's just very approachable but he also has a little bit of prints in him that his music is always number one. So it's not like, hey, how are you doing? It's just, come on, play. And then you'll be like, yeah, but my saxophone is broken. Too bad. Get on, you know, or don't do it. The He said to me, uh, typical, it reminded me so much of Prince. He said, hey, come and join us, play. Uh, we'll do the last song. It's it's you, you. Uh, if you know the If you know the lines, the melody, play it. If you don't know it, don't play it. That's how he talks. But that's exactly what Prince would say. Like, if you know it, great. If you don't know it, get off. <laughs> and that's so funny for my, they're a little bit similar. So I'm very proud to have him on the album and, and to, you know, have him as a friend. He's just, he's amazing. 
And he's another guy who just works, 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 you know, yeah. where it comes to the music. Nile, Marcus, and Prince, very productive, very crazy productive. And that track has, uh, it sounds like a little bit of voice box on it. Uh you mean uh, which one? Oh, Convergency. The, no, the one with Marcus Miller has like. Oh, a little... yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, that, that's actually me playing uh, um, electronic saxophone and then going through um, and that. My fingers make the notes and I do the sound with the mic. And I love doing that. And uh, this is actually, I do a lot of songs like that, or I used to do them before the pandemic on tour. But this song just, uh, yeah, I use that as the only instrument, the walls. Yeah. And we talked about your influences earlier, but I got to ask you also about Average White Band because you've done yeah. Pick Up the Pieces so much. And you also did uh, I'm the One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. They were such a band that I could relate to, you know, because the only funk band that's not come out of America, especially back then, you know, some Scottish guys that could play like that and could really honor the music and would be accepted by African American you know, uh, audiences that that's just amazing. That was, that gave me hope because I, I truly, you know, um, not to digress, but I truly, from when I was really young, even when I was 11 or 12, I always thought in the back of my mind, Hey, I'm playing all this funk music, but I'm from Amsterdam. I, I haven't lived that life. I don't know if they will let me, if they will embrace me, maybe they don't like it. If they play, if I play their music, you know, that's always been there. And then some, stuff like him or David Sanborn, you know, being accepted by so many great African-American players made me think, okay, so if you do it respectfully and you try to be your best, then you might. So um, Everett Wiseman was really special to me. And uh, I just did that song because there, there are so few songs where you have a distinct saxophone line that drives the song. Uh, I mean, in America, people have more smooth jazz hits now, but back then there were only a handful of songs. So I was always looking for that song. So when Pick Up the Pieces, I thought when I started, it's such an old song, but maybe I can do a different version. I should have left it alone, but I made a different version. We were so young. We had no, you know, uh, and we did it. And then, but I always thought, oh my God, if I ever going to meet the average white band, what will they say? I changed the chords and the bridge and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, I met them and they were like, hey, we love it. It's really cool what you did. You know, they're so sweet. So, yeah, I, I really have them have a lot to thank them for because the use of sax alto in the, in the sound there has been really helpful for me. That's what, when I thought, OK, so I can be, you know, they and Maceo really gave me the idea that I could do that on the saxophone. So, Kendra, are you going to be touring extensively now with the new record? Yeah. Out and I've been very fortunate that actually when we were so lucky, whenever territory was opening up, even in Europe, like first in the east of Europe and then somewhere else, every country that was open, I had a gig. So I could, you know, I've, I've done some pretty much touring already uh, the last half year. Uh, but now, yeah, we're really going. I'm going to Japan in two weeks. I'm going to Europe. Um, I'm coming over for the States uh, next year to do the Smooth Jazz Cruise. I'm going to do a huge um, summer tour with somebody. I can't name the name yet, but we're doing a package tour. It's really cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty booked uh, if all goes well, knock on wood, uh, till uh, 20, 2024. And it makes me really happy. And how can people best keep up with your tour schedule? Uh, I put um, mostly on my website. There's always the touring on there, but... 
people sometimes don't understand. They say, hey, uh, there's only these few gigs, but we can only publish dates that are totally confirmed. So, you know, when the uh, when the venue also confirms them, then we can put them on the website. So we're never far ahead, but be sure to know that I'm coming to Japan, to the States, luckily, uh, and to Europe, all over Europe, and ho hopefully even South America as well. Well, I hope you come to Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, I love States. North Carolina. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah, I, I think for nowadays, it's kind of hard for us from Europe uh, with the v whole visa thing. It's super expensive to come over with uh, a band or even alone for a few weeks of touring. Um, it eats up all, any profit that you might have. So it's been a little bit more difficult uh, the last five, six years to get over to the States and then COVID came. But uh, we definitely try. We want to come. Is there anyone left on your, do you have a bucket list of somebody you'd like to collaborate with? I have so many, but uh, I never say that out loud because I always think it jinxes it. Because <laughs> I never said Prince out loud and I got to play with Prince. I never said Van Morrison or Pink Floyd or Dave Stewart and it happened. And so, yeah, no. And I said Tina Turner out loud, it never happened. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't say, but there are many artists that I would love to play with and for and yeah. Wow. And it's been such a joy talking to you, Candy. Thank you so much for spending time and sharing those stories. And thanks for all the great music you've shared with us for so many years. Thank you. Yeah. And sorry, I was so elaborate because, um, yeah, I just feel that this is we're amongst friends and purple friends. So uh, I thought give more, a little bit more insight. Uh, I was trying to be honest. In the first few years after Prince, I didn't want to talk about him at all because there were so much stupid stories going about around him. I didn't want to add to the confusion and the negative vibe. And now I feel people finally see him for what he was, you know, and now uh, you can say even things that are a bit more human and it won't take away from his legacy. It will either, you know, make people understand him. And, and in the end, he, you know, I, I think he was one of the great or the greatest I've ever worked with a uh, greatest person. So I, I hope it's people understand it's respectfully, but that's why I'm more uh, open about it. I, I trust you guys. Yeah. Well, and I'm all about the music. I don't really care about the gossip no. and the rumors no. and all that, you know, we shouldn't be. And, uh, and it's sometimes very interesting to know something about people's personal life because it makes the picture bigger. I love to learn about it, but we shouldn't run with it and make it into negative stuff. So uh, no. So thanks for listening to me. <laughs> you probably have to edit here and there. <laughs> That's no problem. But I want to make sure everyone uh, checks out the new record. Uh, it Thank should be uh, just freshly out by the time this airs. So oh, cool. yeah. uh, never going to stop. And uh, hopefully you're never going to stop. No, me neither. Knock on wood. And I do hope you make it out to the U.S. and we can I uh, can see you again in person one of these days. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm doing a tour, but it's not probably with uh, Dave Koss. And that's going to be a lot of fun with three horns. And we're going to go all through the U.S. So uh, definitely be in your neighborhood. And then I can do my, my own songs as well. So that's going to be fun. And hopefully later with the band as well. So hopefully we come to North Carolina. Awesome. All right. OK, thanks for having me. And uh, have a great. Yeah, what is for you day? Yeah, you, you, it's early. Place. Yeah. All right, Kennedy, take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows 
by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one.